One of the joys that I have is that the only person um, deciding what I'm going to preach is me. And so I took a vote, and it was unanimous, <laughs> that I needed to take a little side note here on our mini-series on the godly women of the church, as we've been looking at in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15. And, and we're going to look at that topic, but I'm going to digress from that text for today. Last time we looked at the godly adornment of the Christian woman. And more than one of you asked me a question. And that question is, what about 1 Corinthians 11, a related passage there? We want to look at the issue of head coverings for women. Because this is important. You can go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians 11. In some circles, this is a hot topic. There are arguments over this. A lot of ink has been spilled over this topic. And so we'll just call this Godly Adornment Part 2 as we're looking at the godly women of the church. Now, just to be reminded of the principles that we gleaned from 1 Timothy 2, verse 9 last time, here's a quick rundown. We saw that Paul's admonition in our main text of 1 Timothy 2, yes, it contains guidelines about external outer apparel, but how much deeper and richer this is when we see that Paul is yearning for the women who profess godliness. And we saw that this means to be somebody who says, I am an expert in walking with God because I've been a believer in Christ for so long that those who profess godliness, that they demonstrate, and we said there are four things they demonstrate. Propriety, meaning that they know how to be appropriate. Empathy, there's a care and a love for others around them. They demonstrate security. They deflect attention from themselves and instead focus attention on others because they're secure in Christ. And of course, they demonstrate beauty. But we saw that this beauty is the imperishable, eternal qualities which will follow you into glory. Those things that are so Christ-like that they'll, they'll never change for all eternity. So what do we do then with 1 Corinthians 11? Here in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul is giving instruction to the church concerning God's created order in general, and then the proper adornment in a worship gathering, such as this right now, in particular. And so let's just take in the whole text. 1 Corinthians 11, we'll begin in verse 2. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is Disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels." Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so now, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? I want to focus on this particular issue of head coverings. Now, I don't think we've ever really talked about that here in the time I've been at Grace I won't have the joy of doing a full exposition on this whole text because I want to focus on that one issue in particular, but we will look at some important pieces of it. So to kind of try to wrap our minds around this, I, I want to just give you a few considerations to think about. We need to engage our minds here as we look at the word. I want to give you a few considerations to put together a meaningful view of head coverings. We want to be logical. We want to be biblical. And so I'm going to give you eight considerations, just things for us to think about. The first consideration we'll call the foundation of authority and submission. The foundation of authority and submission. This is obvious in verse 3. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, 
The head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. This is the major principle at work in this text. This is what it's talking about. That there is a functional subordination in God's order of all things. It includes, by the way, the relationship within the Trinity. The head of Christ is God. Christ submits to God the Father. We should note that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the way, gives women dignity and honor and a heavenly purpose like has never been seen before in history. There's no distinction between men and women in terms of worth, in terms of salvation, in terms of ability, intellect, spirituality. We're all created in the image of God. In fact, you can make the argument that the truest image of God is male and female together. But God created an order. He gave us the principle of authority and subordination, particularly in marriage and in the church. This isn't based on ability. It's not based on superiority. It's not based on IQ scores. And in this one verse, we see this order lived out with God the Son, and it's reflected in the order of human relationships, which is a reflection of the Trinity. And think about this. If Christ had not submitted to God the Father to go to the cross, we would all be lost. If you don't submit to Christ as Savior, you are lost. And if wives don't submit to their husbands, then God's design for marriage and the family as the core unit of of society and as a means of worshiping God, now it's turned on its head. It's turned upside down. Authority and subordination are absolutely essential elements of God's design for the world. They're absolutely essential for God's design for you as a believer. As a matter of fact, a major proof of saving faith is that you submit to appropriate authority. That's a proof of your faith. Uh, For example, Ephesians 6 says that children are to submit to their parents and says, in the Lord, meaning if a child is saved, they ought to submit to their parents. We're called to submit to employers, to officers of the law, to church leadership. Everyone has someone to whom they're accountable. Everyone does. Now, just a side note here. Some try to make the argument that the Greek word translated head in verse 3, kephale, that it means source, that the man is the source of the wife since Eve was created from Adam. And that makes sense. But we run into a problem pretty quickly when we apply the same principle to God the Father being the source of God the Son, making God the Son a created being, and that's heresy. So that can't be it. And that argument doesn't hold water. No, head means in charge of. Now, let me give you two kind of non-emotional illustrations because already I know this is an emotional issue. Kind of a a couple of illustrations that that aren't real emotional for us. They just help us understand. At your job, you may be better at what you do than the person to whom you report. And that may be frustrating for you. Does that give you the right, though, scripturally, to push back, to be disrespectful and to be insubordinate? No, it doesn't. Because the spiritual person believes God when he says in Colossians 3, 22, bond servants, employees, obey obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. That person who is, to whom you report is not your real boss. God is. And he's the one who put that person over you. A second illustration. Leaders in the church are to be selected based on certain scriptural qualifications. But there may be other men in the church equally or worse, more qualified to be in leadership. And yet they're simply not for one reason or another. Does that give them the right to rebel or to feel irritated at the authority structure of their church? No. And in fact, ironically, if they possess the qualifications of a church leader, they will be submissive because they're mature in Christ. And so in the very same way, a wife who loves her husband is loving him because she loves her Lord. And now having a husband is a tangible way to love Christ has nothing to do with whether her husband is more of a prince or a pain. doesn't have anything to do with that. It's very simple. Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, 
his body and is himself its savior. Colossians 3.18, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That means if you're a Christian, if you're in the Lord, that's what you do. That's what Christian women do. And Peter said in 1 Peter 3.1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. But what's the motivation? The motivation is not so I can have a great marriage. The motivation is not so I can be happy. The motivation is not so that that my life can be smoother. The motivation is because I love my Lord who saved me. And all I can do is obey Him. That's my motive. And so the first consideration is the foundation of authority and submission. Now, I've been at Grace Bible Church for close to eight and a half years now, and I have been impressed Overall, by the women of grace, you have put forward a culture of following Christ. You've put forward a culture of encouraging one another toward humble submission and delighting in what God has called you to do. You have done that, and I just want to encourage you to keep that up, encourage one another, lift up one another. It's one thing to hear what a wife ought to do from this pulpit. It's quite another thing to hear it from a a fellow woman. And so keep on keeping on. You're doing a great job. But that's based on the foundation of authority and submission. There's a second consideration, and we're kind of flying high here, and then we'll get more into details. The second consideration is the context of the discussion. What's the context of Paul's discussion here? Well, it's primarily the worship gathering of the church. It doesn't say whether it's a large gathering or a small gathering. That's not specified. Verse 5 says, But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. In the culture of Paul's day, clothing symbols were used to indicate a position or a woman's subordinate position to her husband. I mentioned this the last time that the woman's stola, this outer garment, was forbidden to be worn by certain women. Prostitutes couldn't wear it. Known adulteresses couldn't wear it because it was a garment of honor. So they weren't allowed to wear it. In the same way, in Paul's day, in the culture at large, a head covering for a woman indicated her commitment to her husband as her protector and provider. That wasn't a Christian symbol. It was a cultural symbol. Do we have a cultural symbol today, regardless of faith, of marriage? I'm wearing one, and a lot of you are too. We have a wedding ring. Everybody understands the wedding ring. I'm going to come back to that. These head coverings weren't a function of being a Christian per se. What it meant, though, was that if a woman worshipped with her head uncovered, she was sending a very clear message. And that clear message was, I am not going to submit to my husband as commanded in Scripture, as commanded by the apostles. I'm not doing that. That was the message she was sending. And we should remember that styles and dress are largely cultural. They're not inherently right or wrong with the exception of immodest or sexually suggestive clothing. It's, it's uh, all cultural. I'll give you an example. My daughter and I had a conversation this morning. Where did ties come from? Who first thought to put a noose around your neck and call it decorative? I don't know, but you all know what it means. You know that it means we're doing something serious. You know that you wear this to a job interview and not to go swimming. There's a difference. We understand it. So styles and dress are largely cultural. Now, what about the praying and prophesying part? Again, the context is a worship service. In the first century church, before we had a completed New Testament the Lord spoke prophetically to various people in the church. We didn't have, you didn't have a Bible. And so the Lord gave prophecy. Now, by the way, there's a lot of fuss made over this as somehow proof that women were in fact in leadership in the churches. That doesn't prove that at all. We know that Scripture never contradicts itself. Paul certainly doesn't contradict himself. In our main passage for this series, Paul clearly says in 1 Timothy 2.12, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Chapter 3 of 1 Timothy says a qualification of a church leader is that he, male, is a one-woman man. You can't get any clearer than that. So what is this praying and prophesying which women were doing? Prophesying was essentially being a verbal messenger. Giving the word of God. 
it would be the same as if a Bible verse was written on the sheet of paper and a woman came and simply read it. There's no leadership involved. It is simply saying this is what God is saying. Praying aloud. What about that? With other believers in various contexts. That doesn't have to be a function of leadership. That's a function of being a Christian. We all pray. It's a function of the gathering of the saints. Now, our practice here is that in the largest formal gatherings like this, we default to exclusively male leadership in all things just to be, just to be on the safe side. But certainly in the smaller gatherings of our church and in the context such as teaching, uh, context of teaching women and teaching children, we encourage all of you ladies to lift up your voices in prayer. We want to hear you. By the way, this text in and of itself proves that not everything must be the same as in the first century church. How do we know this? We have no need of prophesying anymore. Why? Because we have a Bible that would take 10,000 years to just scratch the surface. 1 Corinthians 13.8 tells us that the miraculous sign gifts, such as the gift of speaking in other human languages or, or tongues, the gift of prophecy, speaking the perfect word of God supernaturally, those gifts have ceased. And someone might say, well, I used to go to a church where they did those things. Yeah, but they didn't do what the Bible did. Any comparison to the use of those gifts today would show very easily that what's practiced today in charismatic churches bears no resemblance whatsoever to what happened in the early church. What's happening today is generated by psychological desire and spiritual deception. That's it. So that's kind of the, the context of the discussion. Let's go down a little bit lower. The third consideration here, we want to be fair. And so I'd like to give you the arguments in favor of head coverings. The arguments in favor of head coverings. So just to be fair, let's consider what those who favor practicing head coverings in the church would say. This is not an exhaustive uh, list at all, but I really genuinely looked for the best arguments, the, the, the highest level arguments in favor of head coverings. And there's four of them. Now, these are arguments made, by the way, by genuine believers in Christ whose motive is to please the Lord. And so for that reason, by the way, when, when a woman, and you may be one of those, it's okay, genuinely from her heart of hearts desires to please God and you want to wear a head covering, we're not going to look down on that. Not at all. Until it becomes an external standard of righteousness, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But there's four arguments that are very popular. The first one we'll call the argument of creation order. The argument of creation order. Verse 7, for a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now, this is the same as Paul's reasoning in our main passage of 1 Timothy 2 in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. It's the same reasoning. But we don't say, neither did we say, that the creation order argument, for example, in 1 Timothy 2, means that all braids and gold and pearls, as mentioned in 1 Timothy 2, are wrong. What we said was is that they, what they represented in that time is still wrong. And that was trying to be sexually seductive or trying to draw un, undue attention to your wealth, to how well-to-do you are. So the creation order argument to say it means that in all eras, women should wear head coverings, it doesn't hold water. What it does mean is that the principle of order is always in place. That principle is always there. So the argument of the creation order doesn't work in this case. There's a second popular argument. That we'll call this the argument from authority. The argument from authority. Now, what does this mean? It means that if you can get enough famous people who agree with you to quote something that you agree with, that means it must be right. And for example, that because famous preachers and theologians we've heard of, such as R.C. Sproul, believe that head coverings are required today, then that makes it more valid. The problem is that's not a biblical argument from the text of Scripture using well-tested Bible study methods. It just means you're quoting a bunch of people who agree with you. What does that mean? It just means a lot of people got the same thing wrong. That's all. So the argument from authority isn't an argument at all. Why? Because if I quote 50 people who agree with me, what are you going to do? Well, I can quote 50 people who agree with me. And so they cancel each other out. Here's a third argument. 
We'll call this the argument of correlation. The argument of correlation. And we we love R.C. Sproul. He's in heaven now. He has been such a delight to the church, a gift to the church. And so I don't think he would mind if we poked a little fun here. But he said, I do know this, that until 50 years ago, every woman in in every church covered her head. What has happened in the last 50 years? We've had a feminist movement. Well, first of all, that's not possible to know that every woman covered her head in every church. That's not possible to know. I was in church 50 years ago. I was a little kid, but I didn't see any of the women with their heads covered, so that's not possible to know. There have been fashion changes and cultural changes, so to say that feminism is the cause of women not wearing head coverings is not correct. What's happening in this argument? It's a confusion of correlation with causation. I know we're getting into some some heady stuff here. Stay with me. Correlation, correlation, says that two events happen together. For example, between the years 2000 and 2009, statisticians found that in the state of Maine, the divorce rate fell at the exact same rate as the consumption of margarine. So would we say, hmm, fake butter must be the cause of divorce? In the same time period, nationwide, the rise in the number of, I know this is edifying, the number of doctorates in civil engineering that were awarded was statistically the same as the increase in how much mozzarella cheese people ate. Again, we would never say mozzarella cheese must lead to an increased interest in civil engineering. That's a correlation. Now, it is correct to say that feminism has caused an erosion in the belief in the scriptural principle of a created order. The internal heart of obedience to the Lord in human relationships, that's not correlation, that's causation. How do we know that? Because women say it, and it's observable. It's an observable cause and effect. One more argument they would give. We'll call this the argument of cultural excuses. The argument of cultural excuses. Now, we're going to get into some, some, a little finesse here. This is the key argument for what we might call the head covering camp. That those who do not practice head coverings are just making the excuse, well, that's just cultural to abandon something that we don't want to do. Now, we covered this in our first message in this series, but I want to review just a little. To say that's just cultural as a means of totally ignoring an admonition in Scripture, that's wrong. That's wrong to do. But also to say cultural considerations don't matter, that also is incorrect. They do matter. What is correct? Well, what's correct is to consider, listen carefully, that what something meant in the biblical era, we build a bridge to the heart attitude application of what it means today. The meaning doesn't change. The principle doesn't change. The outworking of it does. I'll give you an example. In the early church in Jerusalem, the people in the church were taking almost all of their wealth, their possessions, and handing them over to the apostles to distribute among the body of Christ. Why don't we do that today? Why didn't we, during our joyful generosity campaign, say all of you bring everything you own to the church? Well, because we understand what was happening. In Jerusalem, the new church had tremendous needs because people were being ostracized for their faith, including losing their family connections, which meant you lost your family business. And so you literally had homeless Christians because of their faith. There were also many travelers from other countries staying in Jerusalem, which at the time had the only church in the world. And so if you're living in the city where the only church in the world exists, of course you must share your possessions. What's our application today? Same principle. We have a member care ministry. We receive special offerings to our benevolence fund to help those among us in need. That's our application today. So the best Bible study method doesn't create a false choice of we ignore the admonition because it's cultural or we replicate the admonition exactly. That's a false dichotomy. Instead, we ask the question, what is the principle that's at work and how is that meaningfully lived out from a heart of obedience and love for the Lord? That's the principle. So those are the main arguments and none of them really stand up to scrutiny. Let me give you a fourth consideration. The Bible study standard that should guide us. 
the Bible study standard that should guide us. Now, it's all well and good to say, well, it's in the Bible, so we need to do it. That sounds good, but that's too simplistic. It doesn't account for the context of different time periods, the context of different covenants even. And we tend to be really, really choosy, even if we say, well, it's in the Bible, so we need to do it. For example, historically, the church is big on tithing, giving 10% of our income. But that's an Old Testament law designed for Israel to support a theocratic government. And by the way, it happened twice every year. And every third year, it happened three times. So it's actually 23 and a third percent. It's a different covenant. Why do we give? We give because the New Testament commands us to give generously and with joy for a different reason to support the preaching of the word of God. First Timothy 5, 17 and 18. Is the principle the same? Yes. God said, do it. And so we do. How about this one? Those who say it's in the Bible, so we need to do it. Still eat lobster and crab, but that's prohibited in Leviticus 11. Oh boy, real real quick to say, well, that was cultural then because I need my lobster every other Friday night. We wear clothing made of different types of fabric. That's prohibited in Deuteronomy 22. Why? Well, these were laws given through Moses to the nation of Israel to rightly relate to God under the old covenant in order to distinguish Israel from the other nations. What was the purpose of not wearing fabric made of two different or wearing clothing made of two different types of fabric? It was a symbol of we don't mix that which is godly with that which is ungodly. Or to put it this way, no cotton with polyester. It was a symbol. These are shadows. They were shadows of the true substance found in Christ. So I think for us, that's pretty basic. If you've been at Grace for any period of time, you understand the different covenants and that they have different laws. We come under the law of Christ. But then someone might say, uh, Steve, 1 Corinthians 11 is in the New Testament. Under the New Covenant, women were to wear head coverings in the New Testament. Well, this is where we see our major Bible study principle at work. Here it is. This is a specific application to a general principle. It's a specific application to a general principle. What's the general principle? Verse 3, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. The order of all things as decreed by God. What is the specific application that Paul makes to a culture that universally recognized head coverings as a symbol of a woman under authority, he tells them, don't come to worship without your head covering. We have a different symbol today for symbolizing that a woman has come under the authority and headship and protection and care of her husband. What is it? That symbol is that a wife takes her husband's name. That's our symbol. Many years ago, I did premarital counseling with a couple. And as we were walking through this and I was going to do their wedding, the woman said, I'm not going to take my husband's name. I'm equal to him. Well, it's true. You're spiritually equal, but he's going to be your head. And she said, no, I don't believe that. I'm not going to take his name. And I said, I'm not doing your wedding because you're not going to honor Christ because you won't use that symbol and that symbol revealed her heart. Does that make sense? Taking a husband's name is not mandated in scripture. And yet in our culture, whether we most often think of a woman who won't take her husband's name, we're suspicious. We're suspicious. We make specific applications of general principles all the time. This is normal. Many years ago, my pastor made an application to husbands love your wives. Here is his application. He said, guys, don't make your wife go put gas in the car when it's 20 below outside. Okay, let's do this backwards. Imagine I'm in the city of Corinth 2,000 years ago and I'm preaching on husbands love your wives. And I say, Guys, don't make your wife go put gas in the car when it's 20 below outside. They're going to be looking at each other and say, what are you talking about? Because the application is different. Listen, remember verse 10 that says that the head covering is a symbol of authority. A symbol is only as useful as the knowledge of that symbol. Almost no one in our culture instinctively believes that when they see a woman wearing a scarf or a hat, They don't say, oh, that woman must honor God and honor the authority God gave to her husband. So the symbol doesn't do anything. It doesn't accomplish anything. 
But let me ask you this. If a married man suddenly finds himself meeting an attractive new co-worker at the office and he quietly slips off his wedding ring, we all know what that means. That means in his heart, he is intent on dishonoring his marriage and his wife. Why? Because we get that symbol. So we follow the Bible study standard of understanding specific applications to a general principle. And we try to be consistent with this. The same standard applies to 1 Timothy 2, to the braided hair and gold and pearls that we talked about. If we're going to say that a woman must wear head coverings, then we also must say no braids, no gold, no pearls. But we're talking about heart attitude and the principle behind the practice. That's what we're going for. Let me give you a fifth consideration, and this is where it gets very serious for us. This is not just a preference issue. Now we get to the fifth consideration is the danger of externalism and legalism. The danger of externalism and legalism. Externalism and legalism is the idea of pleasing God purely by means of outward shows of piety and, and religiosity. It's easy. It requires no thought. requires no prayer. And listen, as fallen human beings, we're very comfortable with long lists of rules. We're comfortable with that. Why? Because it requires no thought, no consideration, no prayer, no study, and it makes us feel good because if I'm keeping more rules than you are, then I'm holier than you. In fact, right from this text, we can observe an example of modern people trying to apply something from Scripture which has completely lost the context or the understanding of the principle behind it. Look at verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. Do we see that today? All the time. The coach of the local high school football team wants to pray before the game. And he insists that all the players remove their helmets. He doesn't know why. He just knows that's what you do. And it's a custom that is strong enough that it makes people around you mad if you don't do it. It's said to be a way to respect God. Small problem. It's done by people who do not respect God because they're not saved. They they don't know Christ. They haven't submitted to the Lord. The Lord isn't going, oh, look, that guy took his hat off. Let's save him. By the way, interestingly, the corresponding symbol for women to cover their heads, that one didn't stick. When the women's volleyball coach wants to pray before a game, the team members don't suddenly throw a towel on top of their head. By the way, for Jewish men, by about the 4th century, the practice was completely the opposite. You were to have your head covered whenever you pray. What do we see today? We we see Jewish men wearing a yarmulke. But that's totally cultural as well. Now, I know, men, you still can't bring yourself to pray with a baseball cap on. I dare you to try just once. You're like, oh, I can't do it, and I'm going to take it off. That's fine. But God is much more concerned with where your heart is. But an unsaved man who takes his hat off during a prayer wins no points with God. As a matter of fact, he incurs the anger and fury of God because that man thinks that somehow he's making God happy because he took his hat off. He still remains outside of Christ rejecting the gospel. Rejecting the gospel. Let's get more specific to the church though. The women of Grace Bible Church are those who desire to obey their Lord and Savior, out of love and devotion. This room was crammed yesterday with you ladies. We were wall-to-wall with women who want to know Christ. Over the years, many of your husbands have mentioned to me that through the preached word, your marriages have changed because both of you are now more under the authority of Christ, the authority of Scripture, to husbands love your wives and wives be subject to your husbands. But let's say that today, I made the case that we would like to see the women begin to wear head coverings, that scarves and veils will be for sale at the Grace Equip uh, bookstore on the way out. You are those who desire to honor Christ, and probably most of you would go bring one and from now on would start wearing a head covering because you're submissive and because you want to honor the Lord. But in a very short time, a new generation of women coming to the church, your own daughters, your own granddaughters won't understand that. And for them, it's just an external show of righteousness which makes God happy. And now we have created a false gospel. And then just to do the bare minimum, the debate will rage. How big does a head covering have to be? 
Some would desire to show how holy they are, and they'll bring a king-sized comforter to put on their heads. Others just want to keep the leather of the law, and they'll hide a small sticky note somewhere in their hair, say, head's covered. And what are we going to do? Keep a supply of doilies on hand for all the women who forgot their head coverings. Are the greeters at the door going to be offering a selection of colors and styles at the door? Or if you want to go low tech, we'll just, uh, hey, here's a Kleenex. Just put it up there. No, it would cause all kinds of problems because now we don't become Grace Bible Church. We're Grace Head Covering Church. In my reading, I've noticed that among those who write in favor of head coverings, they say there should be a big push for study and thought and prayer about whether head coverings should be used or not to take a lot of time and effort to focus on this external symbol. How about this? How about spending time in study and thought and prayer about what it means to be a wife who truly honors her husband, who has genuinely subjected herself to his authority to honor Christ, who's walking with an internal heart attitude that says, Lord, how today might I worship you by honoring the husband that you've given me? Listen, if you feel more capable of honoring your husband because you have something on your head, fine. But focus on your heart, and we're certainly not going to make this the measure of righteousness because it'll become a contest really fast. There are women who wear head coverings to their church every week, believing that they're pleasing God, and yet they've never been regenerated. And if they don't repent of self-righteousness, they'll face the judgment of God, and they might even say, to paraphrase in the final judgment, Lord, Lord, did I not wear head coverings to church? And what will Jesus say? Depart from me. I never knew you. So how do we apply this general principle in specific ways? Let me give you a sixth consideration. The last two will just be more bonuses. A sixth consideration, meaningful applications of the head covering attitude. This is what we're going for, meaningful applications of the head covering attitude. And these are ways we all understand. These make sense. How about this one? Honor your husband, especially in public. Honor your husband in public. Don't contradict him in front of others except in respectful and helpful ways. Don't speak ill of your husband with others. Why is it that gossip is somehow not a sin if it's about your husband? It's still a sin. And I would say it's a worse sin because he's the one to whom you're called to honor. Honor your husband, especially in public. How about this one? Encourage your husband to lead unless he delegates something to you. Encourage your husbands to lead. Listen, ladies, I got to tell you something that you already know instinctively. Part of the fall of humanity that has hampered men is the fact that we tend to be either overbearing and abusive or super passive. And there's not much in between. And a lot of Christian men, when they have a strong wife, tend to just go with, hey, works for me. I'm just going to follow. And sometimes, ladies, you might have to say, I'm not moving until you do. And I mean, let him lead in very tangible ways. Very tangible ways. How about this one? Walk beside your husband, not in front of him. That's tangible. Unless he specifically asks you to do so. How about this? Ask him where he would like to go while respectfully making your wishes known. Don't try to make mundane decisions for him that he's plenty capable of making himself. These are all ways to encourage your husband to lead. Here's a third way to apply the head covering attitude. Know the distinction between differences and sin. Know the distinction between differences and sin. If your husband doesn't like a particular food, that doesn't make him wrong. It makes him different. If he does something differently or not as well as you can do it, that doesn't make him wrong. It makes him different from you. Yes, in a marriage we need to help and even correct one another, but, but limit it. Don't make your husband feel like he's married to his mother. He didn't want to marry his mother. We have one of those, and that's enough. How about this one? And this is, I know this is hard, but it's, this is what we need. Avoid arguing with your husband. Avoid arguing with your husband. Present your views, pray, leave things in his hands, unless it's a sin issue. If it's a sin issue, then keep it up. Now, some would say, rightly, but men argue also. Absolutely. We are just as heinous of sinners as the ladies. And that's true. But when a Christian husband senses that he's having to deal with pushback and a stiff-necked attitude on the part of his wife, it puts him in a no-win situation. 
that either he gives up and passively submits to his wife, which is sinful to do, or he has to try to assert authority, which is also sinful to do. There's no verse in the Bible that says, husbands, force your wives to submit. That's wrong. That's sin. It's her choice before God. So avoid arguing. Present your views. Pray. Avoid false expressions of agreement. Avoid false expressions of agreement. There is a big difference between, okay, sweetheart, I've made my views known, and it's your decision, and I will be 100% behind you, and, all right, do what you want, but when you fail miserably, don't come crying to me. You see the difference? There's a big difference between going along with your husband's wishes with a pure heart and a loving attitude and going along with his wishes with a nonverbal expression of disagreement, like pouting or not speaking to him or being snippy and sharp. Uh, what, do, what do men call it? We call it making me pay. How about this one? Now, I love this one because I'm so blessed by this in my marriage. Be your husband's best counselor. Be your husband's best counselor. Listen, a husband who believes he's going to be emotionally punished if he contradicts his wife wife's wishes will ultimately stop desiring to hear what she has to say you 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 hit your thumb with a hammer enough times you stop swinging the hammer but a husband who knows that his wife is offering wisdom a different perspective even a meaningful discussion will find himself coming back to her for advice and to be a sounding board for everything listen there my wife has made me look like a genius on a thousand occasions because I talked something through with her and I was determined this is the right thing to do. And she respectfully said, can I give you 47 reasons why that's not the right thing to do? And by number four, all right, you got me. How blessed that is. She has saved me from being a fool so many times. Be your husband's best counselor. And when you and your husband have prayed and talked and come to a conclusion together, there's so much confidence to push forward. Ask any Christian husband, and I will guarantee you that he values those things much higher than whether you wear a scarf to church or not. You see why that's important? The last two considerations, they're just kind of bonuses. The seventh consideration, we'll just call this the Christian's audience. The Christian's audience. Verse 10. This is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. How interesting is that? What's the context? The context is a gathered worship service and Paul says, do something out of respect for the angels. What does that imply? It implies that we are not only in the presence of God, we are in the presence of his messengers. Angels are saturated in. They're characterized by submission to God. They're completely obedient all the time. They obey out of a fiery love and devotion to their God. They are, in fact, devoted to serving God. How? By ministering to you and to me. Did you know that? Hebrews 1.14 says, Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? That's us. They don't do this because you deserve it. They're sinless, and you sin all the time. No, they do it because it pleases their Creator and they live to serve him. Let me put it this way. You, a sinner, are served by angels who have never sinned, and yet they submit to God to serve you. The angels were present at creation. They understand the created order. They were there. Job 38, 6 and 7 says, On what were its bases sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? The angels were witnesses to the creation of the heavens and the earth and to the created order of male and female. And by the way, they were also witness to what happened when some of their own number rebelled against God and did not want to be in the position of subordination and followed Satan instead. The church is tasked with glorifying God by extolling God's wisdom to the angels. Did you know that? That is your job. 
Ephesians 3, beginning of verse 9, that we are to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What does that mean? It means that the angels are to be in awe of the fact that you who were once a rebel are now a submissive servant of Christ. And they're to just go, wow. Jesus said we're to love the least among us. Why? Partly because the angels do that. Matthew 18.10, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Now what's the point of this? A woman who says, I have received Christ as my Savior. I have been forgiven of my sins. And comes and worships Almighty God in the gathered church in the presence of God and His angels are giving testimony to the angels of the manifold. It means the multifaceted wisdom of God that a previous blasphemer is now an heir of heaven singing praises to the one who saved her. And yet, yet, because the created order is that submission to God and submission to whatever legitimate authority he sets over us, when a woman comes to church to proclaim the excellencies of Christ and habitually refuses to be truly subject to her husband, this is inconsistent, it's incongruous, it's confusing, it's insulting, it's disappointing. And the angels could rightly ask, We thought that following Christ meant that you love him and obey him. Does this one who will not submit to her husband follow Christ or not? One more consideration. One more look at the context. One more look at the context. Frankly, this would be an easier problem to solve if we just moved on to other verses, but that wouldn't be any fun if we didn't do the other things. Remember that the primary context of this passage, this section, is the church gathered to worship. And what is important here is that a woman of God coming to worship with a right and proper and humble heart toward her husband, here's the very simple rationale. Worship is a true, true expression of purity of heart with confessed sin based on the sacrifice of Christ. Look at the overall context later in the chapter. It's still the gathered worship setting. Verse 18 For in the first place, when you come together as a church, there it is, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. There were people who were angry with one another, divided, harsh with one another, factions, the little groups huddled around the church. And he gives the illustration that when they gather for worship, And they come to that time where they often ate an entire meal together, sometimes called the love feast, and they would include the Lord's Supper with this communion that many of them were being selfish and rude. Verse 20, When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And then Paul sets them straight, all their little factions. He reminds them of the humble heart of a grateful worshiper. How does he do this? Like a parent with a child, he takes their head and he points them in one direction. And he says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you drink this bread and drink the, or eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Oh, the purity of having your head whipped around to look at Christ. And now, having been pointed to the cross, still in the context of the gathered worship of God's people, Paul challenges them to come to worship with confessed, humble hearts, not filled with bitterness, not filled with rebellion. 
Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In the same way, same context, same reason, wives, don't come to worship with a haughty or unsubmissive attitude towards your husband. And by the way, we can just as easily say to the men, don't come to worship with an oppressing, a domineering, an abusive, or a passive, unloving heart towards your wife. A woman in Paul's day coming to worship without a head covering was making a statement. Today, I will not be subject to my husband. Today, I will not take up my cross to follow Christ. Today, I will not be crucified with Christ. I will not have Christ live through me. Today, Christ is not my Lord. And yet they were taking the Lord's table to supposedly celebrate the grace of God. So, ladies, if you still want to wear head coverings, our ushers won't be snatching them from your heads as you walk by. But how about this clothing? How about this adornment? Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. That's godly adornment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. It takes work. It takes help. It takes the illumination of the Holy Spirit to read a text written so very long ago. And yet, with your help, we see that this this is as relevant as today. All of us submit to someone, primarily to you. And I would pray that as a church, Lord, our habit, our joy, our continued practice would be that when we gather together, We come with humble hearts, confessed hearts, knowing that Psalm 115 must be true. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you alone be glory. We thank you and praise you for this time in your word. May it be pleasing to you and useful to your people. We pray in Christ's name, amen.